Welcome back to the Run Radio Podcast. My name's Trina, and today on the Writer's Room, my guest is Phyllis Levitt. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad that you are writing a book talking about a topic that we, as a country, really need to start getting behind more and more. And I think we're finally turning a little bit that direction, but I will let you take the reins and tell me about mental health and wellness in America. Yeah. Um, so I just wrote a book called America in Therapy, and I have been a psychotherapist for well over 30 years and and also been a client myself, like so many of us. And um, it began to dawn on me um, after doing my own personal work and working with many, many clients over the years that the dynamics of healthy families and the dynamics of abusive or neglectful or dysfunctional families are fairly well known in the field of psychology. And it's a lot of what we address, even if we're working with an individual person, um, a lot of the work comes down to what was the dysfunction or what were the experiences growing up or in your conditioning that had you adapt in ways that are no longer serving you or maybe even highly dysfunctional in your present adult life. And I began to see that some of the dynamics of the most dysfunctional families and the most abusive families are actually playing out in larger institutions and on a national level, having severe effects on masses of people and whole segments of our population. And and I don't know that this is common knowledge, and I don't know that the effects of abuse and neglect when they're perpetrated on a large level are really the same as when they're perpetrated in a family, and that we know so much about how to break the cycle of abuse. We know so much about how to help people feel when they've been hurt by other human beings, um, and especially some of the human beings that they've depended on most for their well-being and their livelihood or their, their very existence. And so I wanted to put together a book using my own experience, using lots of client stories, um, and some research into current affairs that would really help the average person without any psychological training understand what's not working in our country that's creating such divisiveness and so much violence, and that we actually have tools to help heal this. And so one of the one of the premises of my book is that, we're not suffering so much from ideological divide, which is what we're being presented with. We're really suffering from a lack of mental health in our leadership and in some of our biggest institutions. Because, and I'll just say it this way, and then please jump in. Um, in, an, in, a, in a family, if a parent starves one child or puts them out in the garage in an unheated garage in the winter, or denies them education, or beats them, or kills them. We know that these are highly dysfunctional, abusive parents, and we hope that we can intervene and save the children. We hope that in the best of all possible worlds, and I think this is what you're referring to when you say we're starting to come around, we know that those parents need help themselves. They weren't just born bad people. Their own conditioning set them up to mistreat their children. 
And I'm looking at our country the same way, that if we are calling certain parts of our population inferior or withholding resources from them or targeting them for discrimination, abuse, and neglect, then we're behaving like the most dysfunctional parents in a dysfunctional family. And we have the tools to stop the cycle if we have the will. So what do you that's my intro. <laughs> no, that's great. What do you think is causing, especially for, you know, going back different generations and changing as we have through the years, but what do you think those, those things are that are creating that divide that are sparking that anger that you, I mean, for some people you could never imagine speaking or hurting any way to a child, but what puts that in, in the minds of some people that that's okay. Yeah. And I think there are many reasons, and I don't know that I can cover them all here, but some of the big, most obvious reasons are number one, that they learned from their own parenting, their own parents, that that is how you deal with conflict. That's how you deal with a person trying to express their individuality or saying no or having a tantrum, or having a fear, um, or not doing well in school, that that many parents have learned that this is how you parent children. Spare the rod, spoil the child. We know now in the field of oh psychology, that is not true. You know, yeah. that is not true. But many people grow up with that, and they don't grow up with anything else. So if that's the box you grow up in, and there's no other role model, and no one intervened when you were treated that way, it's highly likely that you will do the same thing. Does everybody do the same thing? No. Some people grow up in very abusive homes and they don't repeat that cycle, um, but some people do and many people do. So that's that's one factor. And another really big factor is that there are a lot of social and cultural influences that reinforce blaming people targeting people as bad. We have a very entrenched paradigm still of good and evil. Some people are good, other people are evil. Evil people deserve to be treated in inhumane ways with maybe some idea that either they deserve it or that, that maybe that will correct them. But we know in the world of psychology that it's not true. There aren't people that are just born good and some people are born evil. We come by our behaviors partly through our nature, partly through our conditioning. And a lot of it is through our conditioning. And what I'm emphasizing in my book is that a lot of our conditioning happens outside the home. It happens in the school ground. It happens in big places of business. It happens in communities that have great racial and economic divides. And we get all these messages about how it's okay to treat people that are not psychologically healthy or sound or ever will produce a good effect. Do you feel like schools are reluctant to talk about mental health? And if so, why? Well, I think our country is still re reluctant to talk about mental health. I think we've begun that conversation. And this is how I think the conversation has begun. And if you have a different point of view or another perspective, please jump in with it. But I think the way that the conversation around mental health has begun, and it's a good thing, 
is that we're looking at the school shooter and we're saying this person is emotionally disturbed, right? Okay. We're looking at the mass murderer and we're saying this person is mentally ill. But what I think we're, and so we're looking at the extremes, you know, the, the homeless person on the street who's talking to people that don't exist. We, we're okay to say that person is mentally ill. But what I'm saying is that we have to look at our overall mental health. We all need to look at our mental health. We need to look at the mental health of our leaders. Are they proposing policies and practices that are actually for the health and well-being of everyone? That's something so, I'm not understanding. I mean, we do we do physical education. We have PE classes. We we're taught how to take care of the outsides of our bodies. Why aren't right. we taught a little bit more, a lot more about our emotions and how to gauge those and how to work with those? Why is that still not coming to the forefront in schools and yeah. beyond? Schools and beyond, and I would say way beyond. And I think one of the main reasons, and I talk about all these things in more detail in my book, but one of the main reasons is that we, as I think it's partly, it's partly in our human nature that we want power and we want control. And as the human beings have evolved over many, many, whatever, hundreds and thousands of years, having power and control was part of our ability to survive. You have to be able to, you know, be stronger than someone who's attacking you or an animal that's out to kill you to survive. And so I think it's part of our human nature that we want power and control, but it's also part of our human nature, nature that we cooperate. That's how we've built societies. That's how we've created agricultural programs. That's how we've created art. And um, some of our sciences is by also working together. But the addiction to power in our, in our country, and I really think it's around the world. I, I talk about America, but I'm really talking about the human race. I talk about America because I live here, and this is the country I'm familiar with. I think the addiction to power and control and the belief that we need power and control to survive is actually hurting us. In an abusive family, the last thing that an abusive adult wants to give up is their power over the people that they are in control of, that they're getting what they want from, or they're getting to vent their anger on, or they're getting to manipulate in some way or exploit. And the same is true for larger institutions. I think it's very hard for people to understand and, and this is a really, this is a cultural shift we need to make. This is a psychological shift we need to make. Um, and this is an ideological shift we need to make that we are actually safer when we share power, when we cooperate with one another, because people who are valued, people whose voice is heard, people who feel like they're an equal at the bargaining table want to cooperate back. They don't want to murder you. They don't want to steal your land because they're being treated as an equal human being and being given to as equal human beings. So I think the power issue is one of the big ones. And, and of course, along with power goes money. And um, we see this all the time and across the board in our country and around the world that people in power don't want to lose their control over the economy. And so 
they're not necessarily coming to the table as equals and sharing power. Does that make sense? It does, but isn't something that we need to be taught that there is power in vulnerability and compassion? Is is that what we're missing here? That's a big piece of what we're missing. And yeah, and you're probably familiar with Brene Brown, who talks about the power of vulnerability. And 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 it is part of the conversation. Um, it is part of the conversation now, and especially part of the conversation on a psychological level, and is moving into the mainstream. And I think it has yet to be really enacted on a national and large institutional level. And one of the reasons why is this, and there's many, vulnerability is scary. Vulnerability sometimes hurts. You know, it can be painful to be vulnerable. It can be very frightening to put yourself out there as not powerful and all put together and having all the answers, um, which is something that we tend to want to show in our society. But one of the main things that makes it really hard to be vulnerable is that it's easier It's never easy to be vulnerable, but it's easier to be vulnerable about the things that have happened to me that have hurt me. It's much harder for people in general to be vulnerable about the things they've done that have hurt other people, to really own that. And that's one of the things I'm talking about. What if as a country, we could embrace that and say, as a country, we have tortured and enslaved black people. We have tried to eliminate Native Americans. We're still running on the basis of enormous prejudices that are hurting not only thousands and thousands of nameless people, but their children. And their children are growing up in a climate in which they're being mistreated. Well, and let's talk about that a little bit about how like families. I mean, I know this is a big scale problem, but when you come down to families and let's take the child that has had the abuse and they finally recognized that abuse and they know they're not going to inflict that on their children, but how do they start? I mean, there is a little bit of the logical, I know this wasn't my fault, but I have all these feelings. How do they start embracing that change and and being okay with that because that is years of blame and guilt and misunderstanding you're absolutely right and that's what a lot of what therapists see in their offices that's a lot of what i've seen over the years in my offices in my office and that is people who have internalized that shame and that blame and they've also internalized something else And that is a feeling of powerlessness often, not always, but often like there's nothing I can do because there was nothing they could do. Mm -hmm. Rebelling didn't work. Just holding your breath and waiting till the abuse is over doesn't really work. Nothing works except rescue from abuse. That's the only thing that works. And then on top of that, really doing some kind of healing work with another caring human being that helps you realize that it was not your fault, that you didn't deserve to be mistreated, and that you are a worthwhile human being. And of course, therapy really is focused on that. Um, but But one of the things that I try to say in my book is that we can also give this to each other. 
we can treat people differently. When we see someone down and out, or we see someone having a bad day, or we see someone just doing their job and they're frustrated and they're not giving us the best service, we can still treat them kindly. We can ask them how we're doing, how they're doing. There's so many ways that we can all intervene. Or if we see a child that's being mistreated, you know, can we intervene in a way that's not just, oh my God, you have horrible parents and they should be in jail, which sometimes they have to be because they're a danger to their children or to society. But also, can we start a criminal justice system that's aimed at treating people, that's aimed at healing? the wounds inside the abuser when it's possible to do that and of course we know that you can't we don't know have the skills to always do that and some people do need to be restrained from society for us to be safe um, but it's a it's a huge picture if that makes sense yeah there's a lot of pieces and a lot of healing that needs to happen on all parts right usually if i understand right you know like you were talking about, power is a lot of what the abuser seeks. If Absolutely. someone is fortunate enough to recognize that that person is abusing, how how do you convince them that they've got to do something about it and that they're harming their children? A lot of times they are so resistant to that and they don't believe right. that, that they are doing wrong. Like you had said, they thought that scolding them was the way. How, how do you get through? Because that just seems like it would almost be insurmountable. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are ways to get through. Let me just say the broad picture and then come down to the individual picture. The broad picture is what I was alluding to a minute ago. We need a major psychological revolution in this country yes. that understands that the perpetrator is also a victim. They learned their horrible behaviors somewhere. They weren't born evil. And for many of us, not for all of us, because like I said, we don't have the skills perhaps to treat a mass murder in a way that they're safe to re-enter society. But for many people, for instance, who are physically abusive or even sexually abusive of their children, they are treatable. And if our commitment is to help people recover what was done to them so that they can learn another way to be, then there's a there's a chance that there we have many, many people in our society that don't need to be in jail, that don't need to be looked down on as horrible people, but who are actually um, available for rehabilitation. But we need to make that commitment to see the person inside them that got harmed. And one of the ways that I talk about it in my book is that they're without intervention, without rescue from abuse and without treatment afterwards, there are two most likely outcomes for people. And of course, we know that not everybody fits this bill. We know this, but two likely outcomes are that you identify with the perpetrator and become aggressive and violent on some level, emotionally, physically, sexually, or otherwise, or an addict, um, or you become passive and helpless and you can't defend yourself from further aggression later in your in life. And what happens often is that someone who is identified with the aggressor and becomes dominating and all powerful is attracted to a partner who's passive because that's the person who's going, they can control. And so then you have a setup within a family for a repetition of the abuse. 
And, and if we could grasp this on a broad scale, on a community scale, on a national scale, then we would have hope of intervening without just targeting people as bad people. We, we need to heal the family system on an individual level with compassion for what got people to where they are. And we need to heal the same dynamics on a national level because this is what is playing out. There are people who are bullies on the playground on a national scale, and there are many people who are submitting to that kind of control. I I agree with you that they they can be helped, but who and how, especially when it's a parent and the child is feels mm-hmm. powerless, how do they get that help? Who's the person to rescue? And I know that's a big question, and it's probably got a myriad of answers, but can you kind of at least give something to maybe a young person that might hear this and thinks that the same, like, I, I know mom and dad, this can't be right, but I can't do anything. Yeah. I think you have to look for help outside the family. And I think as a, as a nation, as a community, as a human race, we have to begin to offer that help um, with compassion, with the desire to help rather than, you know, I think a lot of children don't tell partly because they're afraid of retribution from the abuser, Mm -hmm. but also because they still love their parents and they don't want to see parents in jail. So if, so that's one of the reasons why a lot of abuse doesn't get support, get reported. And so we have to, as a community, start to educate people come forward because we're offering help for the whole family. And if people knew I I think, and again, this doesn't apply to everybody. There are people out there who are so deeply entrenched in the mindset of power and control and abuse that we don't know how to help them. And at best, we probably have to restrain them from access to the people that they would hurt. But there are many people, if, if they were in a position where we were in a room with them, sitting down, talking to them and saying, what happened to you? What was your childhood like? Who did this to you? What happened to you as a result? How did you learn to cope with the pain you felt when you were beaten as a child or raped as a child? Then you have access to the person because you've made it safe for them to reveal and feel their own pain. And that's what therapy does. That's what we do all day long in therapy. We make it safe for people to talk about the things that they're most scared to talk about, the things that they have the most shame about, the things that they've taken on the most blame about, the things that they have the most pain about. And as a culture, we have to do that. And a good example that I I often talk about is, I I live in Taos, New Mexico now, but I used to live in Santa Fe. And a long time ago, there was a man named Craig Barnes who lived in Santa Fe. And sadly, he's passed away. But one of his many hats was he was an international mediator. And I went to a talk that he gave, and he talked about how he would approach trying to mediate intense warlike conflict between you know between opposing parties whether it was you know one city or one tribe or whatever against each other and he said he always started by asking each side to share with the other their pain the children they had lost the homes that had been destroyed the temples that had been ruined 
um, the devastation that they had personally experienced. Some people had lost whole families. They their their houses and their villages had been burned, bombed. Um, and he said once he could get people to share their pain, they started to to come together on their shared humanity. And that's that's it. That's part of the key. We have to be able to sit down and share our pain and listen. And then we can start to connect as human beings and drop some of the ideological differences or the religious differences or the gender differences or the economic differences or the power differences. One of the things that has been in in um in the news and topics on some streaming services have been how some of the religions have really gotten to some parents and ingrained very harmful teachings that get passed down to the children. Um, what as a community can we be doing to watch for those signs and make sure that help is being inserted where necessary? Right. One of the big things, and again, I, I I start with the big, and sometimes I don't make it to the small, so you have to remind me. Um, but one of the big things that I think really needs to, that we could upgrade, let's put it that way, in our whole culture is start to teach psychology as part of our curriculum. Mm -hmm. Start to teach family dynamics in our schools and in our high schools and in our colleges and have it be just as much a part of the, our basic curriculum as math and science and reading and geography. Awesome. Because- because you said, and I, this is, I totally agree. This is the missing piece. This is it. If we could address our mental health, we would be a whole different country. We would be different families and we could be a different world. And I don't think it's Pollyanna. I don't, I think if we can do it individually in our own lives, and some people can do the hard work of changing their family dynamics and healing if we're all made, every institution and large organization is made up of individuals and if individuals can do it larger groups and nations can do it too so we have to start by making this information available and that's really one of the main goals of my book i want this information to be available to anyone to the layman to the man on the street to a kid in high school to a college student I hope college students will read my book. I hope high school kids will read my book um, because it's the ent it's an entryway. And I'm, and I'm not alone. I'm not saying I'm the savior. I'm saying I'm offering what I have learned that I think can be a value to, to start open up this mindset. And so when you're, when, so that we could understand that whether it's a church or an organization or a governmental agency or an economic group or a racial group that is overpowering other people with a discriminatory narrative that this is this is a, it's allowed to see other people as sinners or bad and evil and therefore act out on them these this is a psychological issue i don't believe essentially it's a religious issue or a spiritual issue or a gender issue or a political issue it's a mental health issue because mentally healthy people don't do these things what can we be doing as a community to make us a stronger community moving forward with everything you're saying 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a million things we can do. I think we can start talking about family dynamics in our school system. We can bring in people to talk to children and, and, you know, and tell them what, what healthy family dynamics are and make it safe for them to tell if they're being hurt. And that means like, we're going to do everything to help your parents. We're not just going to lock them up. Um, and they, and and again, sometimes people need to be incarcerated because they're too much of a danger. But we need to start to make it safe. We need to bring in people to speak about their own, tell their own story of healing. This is what happened to me as a child. And this is what I did. And this is who I turned to for help. And this is how they helped me. And now I have a different life. And I'm coming to share my story with you because it's possible for all of us. So these are some of the these are some of the small scale things, but but the other the bigger scale things are, and these are also small scale and big scale, is that we have enormous resources in this country. We have millions and billions of tax dollars that are being put into weapons of mass destruction instead of into our families. Help parents, pay living wages, offer elf health care help children get a higher education. We could we could reassess where we put our money into people, into well-being, into the health and well-being of our families and our children. Offer therapy for free. Offer family counseling. You know, um when we put billions of dollars into weapons of mass destruction, what we're saying is exactly what we would abhor if it was an individual family, we're going to put your food money and your healthcare money into buying more assault weapons and having them in our house so we can kill more people. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. We had talked a little bit about curriculum, you know, school curriculum and how that needs to be in there. Is that something that again, as a society, we need to be pushing legislation for, or how, how, how do we, how do we push that? That's what, what we want our, our teachers to get as well as the students. Yeah. I mean, I think it's many pronged what you're saying. Okay. I think we need to educate each other. And that's my purpose. And that's many people's purpose. I'm not alone in this by any right. means. I'm one voice. But I think we need to educate each other about, for instance, like the school shooter didn't end up that way by accident. We have to intervene early on with families that are in trouble. It may not even be that a child is symptomatic, but if you have families that are living in poverty and suffering from addiction and who have suffered abuse themselves and there's no help for them in the community and there's nowhere for them to turn, we can expect a repeat of what happened to them. So it starts with education We because an informed public will demand different legislation. They will vote for people who want different legislation. And then, of course, we hope that we can vote for people who have some of this understanding and wisdom already in their own being and that they advocate that from above. Well, I, I appreciate your part in putting together a book for this. Tell people the title and where they can go to keep up with you and everything you're writing about. 
Yeah, the book is called America in Therapy, A New Approach to Hope and Healing for a Nation in Crisis. And um, I have a publisher. I do not have the publication date yet. So okay. I, I will, what I would love is um, I have a website. It's www.phyllislevitt.com. And that's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-L-E-A-V-I-T-T.com. And if you go on my website at any time, you know, I will update you about the progress of where, when my book will be published. Um, but you can also sign in, leave your email, and you will be the first to know when it's available. You can also find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, but the but the very best thing you can do is sign in on my website so that I can tell you when the book is available. And I would be very happy, um, Trina, to put you on my email list as well so that I can let you know. And, and that if you would like to tell your viewers at that time, that would be awesome. Sounds great. I'd love to keep up with you. And I'd love for you to come back when you have more to share another book and more insight on how we can be doing better as a society for our mental health. Thank you so much. I would absolutely love to come back and I have way more to share. Sounds <laughs> so, great. Thank Wonderful. you. Thank, thank you, you thank very you. much. Thank you.